This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sound of that brutal hailstorm this week in Colorado Springs, courtesy of the National Weather Service. So many cars and buildings were damaged that local glass shops actually ran out of glass to replace those broken windshields and windows. Meanwhile, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo announced two more animal deaths related to Monday's storm. The zoo is shuttered till Saturday. So why does it hail? When can we expect it to stop? The kinds of questions you ask Nolan Deskin. He's former state climatologist, and he's on the phone with us. Hi, Nolan. Hello there. Why is Colorado seeing these intense storms this year? Well, I think we see intense storms every year. They don't always happen to hit the populated areas. The western Great Plains are always prone to late spring and early summer hailstorms. The ones that linger past the first week of August are a little less common, but they happen as well. So are we expecting these to end soon then? I am exp- I am truly expecting them to end quite soon. Uh, but it's just interesting to see what a lively season we've had. It got off to a fast start. June was one of our, probably the month with more large hailstones reported than any any other month in recorded history. Now, that doesn't say much because there's a lot more people out checking hail than there used to be. But nevertheless, it was one lively month. And then it's continued on in July and August. I take your point, though, that there's simply more people moving to the West. And so what was a populated or is a populated area now isn't necessarily a populated area, you know, 20 years ago. I suppose that has something to do with how we perceive hail. How is hail made? Well, it takes a strong updraft, moving air upward above the freezing level, and the freezing level's at 12, 15, 20,000 feet above, above sea level. But that means we're already high-altitude state, which means that hail is forming a little closer to the ground and has a better chance of reaching the ground after it forms. It seems so strange to me that there's this frozen weather aspect in the middle of the summer. Uh, Paint a picture of what happens in the sky there. All right. So the air near the ground heated up quickly by the warm summer sunshine. If we have enough moisture in the air, which we have on several occasions this summer from the east, uh, that's the fuel to form clouds. And then if the atmosphere is unstable enough, and when I say unstable, I mean the temperatures have to decrease fairly rapidly with height for the air to remain buoyant and continue to explode upward when an updraft gets going. Uh, And then when that happens, voila, you form the the bulbous thunderhead that we are all so familiar with. And then some of those storms may just produce cold rain, but quite a few of them, especially this year, have been, been, been making hail. Usually the most common hail size in Colorado is only a quarter inch to three-eighths of an inch in diameter. But this year we've been throwing a lot of the really large stones. What's the largest hailstone ever recorded? Well, here in Colorado, we've had maybe 20 different storms that have produced hail that's reported as four and a half inches in diameter. Now, four and a half inches happens to be the size that is used to describe a softball. 
And so some of those may have been small softballs, some may, may, may have been larger ones. But we are nowhere as close to the largest hailstorm that's, that's ever been reported on the Great Plains. Okay. Uh, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, and the Dakotas and eastern Montana have all had even larger hailstones. The biggest one occurred just a few years ago up in Vivian, South Dakota, was measured, saved, documented, and even driven from South Dakota to the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder huh. to explore and investigate. And that stone was eight inches in diameter, believe it or not. Eight inches in diameter. That was, sounds <laughs> yes. absolutely terrifying if you were falling Incredible. anywhere near that. And the people in Vivian, South Dakota, said that there were more stones like that, and possibly a few even bigger that they didn't catch in time. Uh, just looking here, that is about the diameter of a volleyball. <laughs> well, fortunately, it wasn't a totally uh, spherical hailstone. It was somewhat elongated, but still, it was huge. Is there a limit to how big a hailstone can get? I mean, could... You have basketball-sized hail. We we've heard reports, particularly from China, of larger hailstones, but that it's truly that's pushing the absolute upper limit, without a doubt. Okay, there are physical forces that constrain how big hail can get. If if that's cold comfort for folks. <laughs> uh, before we go, yeah. it is probably no coincidence that the North American Hail Workshop takes place next week in Boulder. I noticed that your name is on a paper that'll be given there, and it's about an international network of 20,000 people, everyday citizens, who have helped collect hail data since the 90s. And I was intrigued to read that the citizen scientists use styrofoam hail pads, I guess as a, a way to measure the intensity? It's, you're able to look at one of these foil-wrapped pieces of foam and within instant you just look at it you immediately can see how many stones how much uh, damage are they doing by the way once you get over about two inches they pretty much shatter the foam <laughs> into into shreds so so it, but it's a very low cost approach of getting very useful information all over the west and uh, i understand north america in fact nolan thank you for being with us it is my pleasure. Nolan Deskin is the former state climatologist. He talked to us about what the hail is happening. Hail isn't the only summer phenomenon Westerners have to contend with, of course. There are wildfires, too, and growing concern about the health effects of smoke. When's the last time you looked outside and hadn't seen some sort of haze? CPR health reporter John Daly looks at the risks and how technology helps experts track the smoke. The number of large wildfires burning in the U.S. has been hovering around 100. States with the most fires include Alaska, Oregon, California, and Colorado. Wildfire smoke is a health hazard around the West because it can compromise people's respiratory systems. Katie Nelson keeps a close tab on conditions in Grand Junction. She describes how the view out her window has been changing. Yeah, it is hazy and overcast, so I can typically see some landmarks from my window, and it's it's still smoky enough that I can't, I can sort of see the outline. Um, yesterday, it was I couldn't see it at all. Smoke from the Cash Creek Fire north of town and from big fires in Northern California has put a haze in Nelson's view. 
She's communication manager for Mesa County Public Health, and they've put out health advisories warning residents to avoid the smoke, especially the old, young, and those with respiratory issues. I haven't seen it to this extent to where we've had to issue an advisory for this many days. A webcam on the roof of Nelson's building watches the conditions. 250 miles away in Denver, Scott Landis checks the Grand Junction image on his computer screen. He's a meteorologist with the state health department. We have a lot of smoke uh, statewide, but the heaviest of the smoke is in in western parts of the state, west of the Continental Divide. Uh, We're seeing some very high levels of fine particulates. For the last couple of weeks, that smoke has been drifting east to Colorado from California's big wildfires. It contains fine microscopic inhalable particles that can get deep in the lungs. Studies link particle pollution to a variety of heart and lung problems, including aggravated asthma and decreased lung function. Landis says those health impacts can be significant. There's lots of folks who, you know, suffer from, you know, heart and respiratory uh, issues. And and those are the folks that are going to be impacted the most by this wildfire smoke. So it's really important for us to get the word out. To track conditions, Landis relies on an array of high-tech tools. Their National Weather Service satellite feeds. Landis points to bright glowing spots on the screen indicating wildfires. The images allow his team to get a jump on predicting where the smoke might go. Right there. There's the fires by Redding, California, and these are uh, the ones in Napa. So all these are producing smoke, and you can see the upper-level winds, the clouds. The health department has its own network of pollution monitors, but most are on the front range. Then there are the dozens of monitors statewide owned by individual homeowners or businesses linked to the web through a company called Purple Air. We, We look as many resources as we can to determine if we need to issue an advisory for that area. On a warming globe, expect more wildfire-driven air advisories in the future. A recent academic study projects that by the middle of the century, more than 80 million people living in the West can expect a nearly 60 percent increase in the number of smoke waves, heavy smoke lasting two days or more. Landis says tracking that smoke is critical. We need these new tools. I mean, we, you know, we, if, if we're going to have more wildfires, which we're expecting, and more wildfire smoke, which we're expecting, uh, we need more tools, better tools, to be able to detect this wildfire smoke and let the public know when, when there's health problems. The American Lung Association warns climate change, things like drought, wildfire, and higher temperatures, makes air pollution more dangerous. And it increases the risk from pollution in a variety of ways, from ozone to allergens. Health Department meteorologist Scott Landis says these wildfires and the vast smoke they produce are simply the new norm. I'm John Daly, CPR News. The grisly murder of a family in Aurora in 1984 was seared into Matthew Sullivan's memory. It was shocking. And it happened at a time in my life when I was kind of straddling the place between adulthood and childhood, eighth grade. And it was the first incident that really took me out of childhood. It terrified me. And it terrified my whole family. And it terrified all of our neighbors. And I think that anybody who was in Aurora or Denver at the time felt that shock and horror. Sullivan ended up writing a novel inspired by the case. And what you heard there was from our interview last year. Well, there appears to be a break in the case. The Denver Post reports that a DNA match has been made with an inmate in Nevada, 
We'll learn more in a news conference scheduled for tomorrow. For now, let's listen back to a conversation about the case with cold case detective Steve Connor of the Aurora Police Department. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. In 1984, Bruce Bennett, his wife Deborah, and their seven-year-old daughter Melissa were bludgeoned to death in their home. The killer also attacked their other daughter, three-year-old Vanessa, who was severely wounded but survived. Why uh, has this been such a hard case to solve, do you think? I think the, uh, uh, the most difficult aspect of it is focusing in on the randomness of that case and ultimately how it connected to one or maybe two other cases that were being uh, investigated around the same time. So it might be connected to other crimes, but the randomness, you say, makes it difficult. What do you mean? It was just kind of a, a shock to not only the, the neighborhood, but the police department is something that this intense, this bizarre could have occurred. The, the mother of Bruce coming to the house and discovering the carnage that's inside her son's home um, and then calling us and we have to walk through that and then determine what occurred. Does this case stand out among the cold cases that you're investigating? It stands out primarily because it's one of the oldest. I think it's uh, one of the top three oldest cases that I'm looking into. That, the brutality of the case, the apparent, like I said, randomness of the case, and the number of people that were killed. I gather, though, that you investigated whether it could be a family member or a, a friend of the family that committed this. I think you've interviewed like 500 people. Not me personally, but the case investigators. That's right. right. Yeah. These things go on for years and and not all of that takes place under your tutelage. But uh, I'm assuming the people closer to the family were also investigated. Correct. We, for the most part, work from the inside out. The closest would be the relatives and expand to friends and then acquaintances and then maybe prior employees that, you know, would have some type of relationship with the family. You've issued a John Doe arrest warrant in this Bennett case. Can you explain what that is? It's uh, a warrant based strictly on, I guess, the DNA content of uh, the suspect. and Plenty of which, I guess, was left at the scene? Sufficient enough to develop a profile and to use it to you know, determine other aspects of uh, who this person may be. And it's just a series of numbers and letters in different areas that say this is the identifier for this DNA, and that's the warrant we have for it. About a year ago, there was a new invention in DNA imaging that became available, and the department issued a composite of what the killer may have looked like 30 years ago and what he may look like now. And at the time, you thought that that might be a breakthrough in the case. I was kind of hoping it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, We felt based upon what the FBI profile provided to us and the demographics of Aurora during 1984 that the suspect was probably a white male. Um, This confirmed that along with giving us a general image of what this person could have looked like. You really have to take into consideration, you know, lifestyle, whether the guy's, you know, stocky build, slender build, if he's got, I don't know, acne or something like they can't determine that so this gives you a general composite very general composite how often is a cold case solved um i don't know that you can put a a, you know percentage quantify the yes the the success rate Um, when they're solved why is it um it's usually for me it's been basically a forensic 
connection between the suspect and the crime scene. Someone may provide additional information related to what they know or what they've heard, and then off of that, being able to focus in on a specific individual. But generally, it's the the forensic connection. How much hope do you have that the Bennett case would be solved? Oh, I have lots of hope. Um, Personally, I believe based upon as long as it's been since a similar crime or series of crimes have occurred that, you know, he's, I, I believe he's no longer alive. I mean, someone gets dispute that. You believe uh, that the killer has died. Correct. What leads you to believe that? You don't, you don't just wake up one morning and decide that, you know, today I'm going to commit a spree murder or mass murder. Um, you kind of work your way into something like that. This guy was probably involved in some criminal activity prior to this spree that occurred during a couple of weeks in January 1984, and then it stopped. We've run the profile, basically the criminal profile, through FBI, who runs the VICAP system, and said, connect us to any similar offense that you know, could be related to this, and they haven't been able to do it. VICAP is a database of... Right. It's uh, an MO, a modus operandi database where it's we feed them information related to our crime and they try to match it to a similar crime. Do you have to have a lot of hope to do this kind of cold case work? I think you do otherwise you're you know you're you know beating your hand against the wall. It's like uh, you look at the case and the way I started is how much evidence do I have and how much of the evidence has not been processed. You go from there and how many people or witnesses are still available, still around, go contact them. So there's always, and then, of course, reviewing the case, there's always the hope that maybe the original detective missed something. Thank you for being with us. Sure. Aurora Police Detective Steve Connor is speaking to us last year about the 1984 murders of Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett. It's possible he's wrong about his theory that the killer is dead because tomorrow officials will hold a news conference about reaching what they call a critical stage in the investigation. Disappointment and history light. That's how outgoing state historian Patty Limerick recently described her feelings about History Colorado and many of its recent exhibits. In a column for the Denver Post, Limerick said part of the reason she's speaking up is because of CPR's recent reporting about the direction of History Colorado and a perceived lack of community involvement. And Patty Limerick joins us with some additional perspective. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Fun to be here. When we talk about exhibits currently on display at uh, the Mm -hmm. History Colorado Center, which ones do you consider history light and and why? Oh, dear me. Um I consider all of the exhibits to be some version or another of history fragmented and history not getting the full chance to engage people in thought about our times as well as the origins of our times. So I would say, well, okay, so uh, putting Colorado together in Lagos, not Lagos, Nigeria, but Lagos as in the little uh, block forms, that's not really doing much to advance the cause of understanding. Uh, Even the 100 objects, there's Colorado history and 100 objects, but that is by definition fragmented. And some of the choices are peculiar for the progressive era, where Colorado had an extraordinary set of figures, the most remarkable person in the country for trying to work on juvenile justice issues and avoiding juvenile delinquency, for instance, Ben Lindsay. Well, so you go through this exhibit, you're going to go through all of history, the chronology is a little bit jumbled from time to time, and when you get to the progressive era, you don't get our 
heroic Judge Ben Lindsay, you get a can that was used to sell malted milk and some Christmas tree lights for the progressive era. And that's like, I don't know. I mean, why is that? Why were those the objects chosen? I know there was a mandate to get things out of the collection and on display. And that was a very strong push. However, Christmas tree lights and malted milk. You think that there's a superficiality, I think, is what I'm hearing you say. And yet I think of Borderlands earlier this year. This was about the people and cultures of southern Colorado. And for the first time, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo came to the state. Hard to call that history light. Oh, goodness gracious. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to say I am speaking about exhibits at the History Colorado Center in Denver. If you want to talk about El Pueblo and the director there, Don DePrince, we're going into serious fanhood and Mm. cheerleader status here. She is remarkable. And that exhibit is something. She convened scholars. She did things in the best way possible. So Your concerns are specifically about the Denver location. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said you also have some issues with upcoming exhibits like ones about beer, marijuana. Some might say those sound fun. What's the problem? Well, fun. Again, I want to make it clear that you can do serious subjects in an engaging and compelling way. So this is not a battle between dreary, somber history and uh, merry, light tales of history. It's not that. You can do. You can have entertainment and engagement for any subject. The, the beer problem. Okay, so the great constituency of History Colorado is school children on tours. Now, Ryan, you have given many wonderful comments on many different subjects. Can you imagine yourself taking some fourth graders through a festive, merry celebration of beer? Do you reach some point where you say, and now we're going to hear some little snippets from Mothers Against Drunk Driving who have lost lost family members to drunk driving? We're going to talk to some people who have had serious problems with alcoholism. I mean, it doesn't have to be, and now we're going to learn all the perils of life Think, uh, elements that seem fun but then turn out to be grim. But if your main constituency is school children, and I have checked this with K-12 through teachers when I've been doing teacher workshops, would they bring their children there for a light celebration of a festive beverage? They would be uncomfortable with that. And I think there might be some pushback from parents if they did that. In your piece in the Denver Post, you said you were theoretically given authority over exhibits at the museum as, as state mm-hmm. historian once again. Uh, you were appointed by History Colorado to that position. Well, appointed, which... I thought, by the governor at that time, but let that go. So. Did the buck not stop with you? Ooh, the buck barely got to me. Uh, I wasn't even officially announced and appointed. And there was a, a sudden phone call that they were going to put on an exhibit that was about the cool things they owned. There would be little pop-up exhibits, and it would say, here's Kit Carson's clothing, uh, buckskin clothing. Who knew we owned that? We owned that. And I was instantly saying, oh, please be really careful, because Kit Carson is a very interesting figure. To the Navajo people, he marched them on a relocation, the Long Walk, that is the most devastating episode in Navajo history. So don't just be putting this up in a light manner. So this was in uh, the fall of 2015, before I was even appointed. And I'm sad to say I was already... I was already um, recognized as someone who would be raising complicated issues. And so my authority began to evaporate right about there. Your perception is that their perception of you was as a complicator and a troublemaker? Is that Well, I, I, I wouldn't go with... I, I, again, I'm, I, I can say that all I know is that I did not end up exercising any authority, and I found myself in a rather tenable 
untenable position because I was lending my reputation, my credibility, my expertise, and I had not had the sense to really get it spelled out that I would have authority and power. So I would urge this new state council or the new council of state historians to make sure that they have that granting and delegation of authority before they lend their reputations. Indeed, there is an incoming state historian and there's this new state historian's council. Do you find that to be a positive development? I I fear what I would find, I can tell you what I would really find is a positive development. If the state historical society had state historians on staff or historians of Colorado on staff, I think there should be, it is astounding. I mean, if you went to a dentist office and they said, well, we actually don't have anyone who has a a full dental degree here, but we'll be happy to start drilling. Well, that doesn't, I think I'll go somewhere else. So this is a historical society without someone with a PhD or two people or three people with PhDs on their staff. That's got to change. To the best of my, I have been trying to get that information confirmed, and I have not been able to get a response. So it is my impression there's nobody on the staff with a PhD in history. We are live, and if the record is different, uh, we will correct that for sure. Yes, please do. Oh, I I, I have been trying. I've been... For a month and a half, I've been trying to get a response on that question. So Now, it sounds like your communication with History Colorado has been Spartan, to say the least. Um. It was ex- it was extraordinarily abundant for several months. With I've never seen a group so into meetings as they were then. Uh, conclu- what was your last contact? Oh my goodness! My last contact was that I received a document. I didn't actually meet with anyone, but in March of 2017, I got a document that said that I would agree to act at all times in the best interest of History Colorado. And I wouldn't, that seemed like a loyalty oath. It seemed uncomfortable, so I didn't sign it. So that was the last uh, communication transmitted through an intermediary, was to say I could be fired if I did not act in the best interests of History Colorado. So the last contact between the state historian and History Colorado was March of last year? Uh, Yes. All right. You have also called for History Colorado to invite members of the community to discuss the type of programming that they'd like to see. Um, this column ran just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. in the Post. Have you heard anything from History well, Colorado? Hey, so that was my dream was that, and I, I want to say that column had many positive elements in it. I said I felt History Colorado could play a huge role in furthering civic conversation. I saw them as capable of doing that, and I wanted them to join me in a public forum where we would talk about exhibit topics, programming topics that could move in that direction. I think of the race uh, exhibit and programming right, in a previous a regime, a few yeah. years yeah. back, mm-hmm. in which there were a lot of community conversations mm-hmm. around it. Right. So it's and good heavens, it's happening all over the country. There's uh, the lynching museum. I mean, all kinds of extraordinary things are going on. The Museum of African American History and wonderful things. So I wrote that invitation. I then sent it the next day to the board members and the CEO. I sent a link to the column and I said, I'm eager to get started planning the forum. Probably 30 or more citizens wrote and said, when's the forum? We want to be there. I have not received a response. Not gotten a response to that. There's one particular discussion that you wanted to have at History Colorado, I think this summer, part of an exhibit you had in mind called Parting Ways with Partisanship. Uh, just briefly, what would that have looked like? Well, as it happens, this state is often called Purple Colorado, and Tom Cronin at uh, at Colorado College has written a fine book. He and his co-author, Bob Levy, have written a wonderful book about that tradition. Two political have, scientists in the state. Yes, yes. And we have, in our history, and 
Among us, we have Republicans and Democrats who have found ways to work with each other in very effective, collaborative ways. A coalition around, for instance, early childhood education, in which Republicans and Democrats are arm in arm. So I would have liked to have had an exhibit tracing this these episodes of congenial collaboration between conservatives and liberals in our state. And I'm not saying other states don't have that, but I think we have, it's a place where Colorado could lead. So I was, I had proposed an exhibit on that. It would have been, if we'd gotten working on it, it would be opening now. I would be having panel discussions with people from different partisan locations talking about how they had managed to work with each other. So sadly it died very fast, but it was a, it was a cool idea. But Patty Limerick, History Colorado does not have endless resources and mm-hmm. has been trying mm-hmm. in, in many ways to right-size its mm-hmm. budget. Uh, so is is what you're calling for reasonable? I, I believe it is because I have a center, the Center of the American West, and we do programs and we are not infinitely rich. And so we're pretty good at figuring out what could we afford. So this these series of public programs... If we couldn't have an exhibit, the public programs would have been great to bring in the part, uh, the people from different parties who collaborate. You think and, that that's a, a low I think, sort of investment financially? I think you should take them out to dinner afterwards. Okay. And you could take them out for hamburgers <laughs> they don't if have you have to have steak. So, no, they don't. Do you have an axe to grind? Uh, I have a long history with History Colorado. I feel that History Colorado is underperforming, that it could be playing a huge role in making a col- – a, giving Colorado a leadership position in the nation in deliberating on history and its meaning for us today. So I feel that History Colorado is forfeiting chances to do that. I feel that History Colorado is like a car driven with the parking brake on. It is so not using its full force, but it has force. And there is no reason, I believe, that the board members wanted a lively, vital center of community conversation when they took office with the reorganization. I think they could still do that. Do I have an X to grind? No, my problem in life is that I am hopeful and cheerful and optimistic. Optimistic, and I think things could happen. And that you come from a place, it sounds like almost of love for this institution. I think I do. I think I do because I have um, been, since I was a kid, just uh, swept away and and uh, I melt in the company of historical perspective. Thank <laughs> I you. Just, I love is the word. For being with us. It's Patty Limerick. She leads the Center for the American West at CU Boulder. She is now, the former Colorado State historian can read and listen to our previous reporting on History Colorado, including what its current executive director says about its path at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The next voice you'll hear was one of the most trusted in America. The war has ended. Peace has come. But now we think of that atomic bombing. The mere start and drama of it would make us pause. Two blows launched from the sky and Japan surrendered. The cataclysmic force of the atom hurled once, then again, and the war is over. We've been saying this week that the power of the elemental weapon is hardly to be believed. And tonight we can add that nobody ever dreamed of a secret weapon ending a war so suddenly, so quickly. Lowell Thomas helped shape journalism in the 20th century, even though he played fast and loose with the truth early in his career. Thomas grew up in Victor, west of Colorado Springs. He got a start in newspapers here. His legacy and the shaping of journalism in America is especially relevant at a time when the media are under attack. Thomas is the subject of a biography called The Voice of America. The author is Mitchell Stevens, journalism professor at NYU. Welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. 
It's interesting. You note in this book that most of of uh, America under the age of sixty doesn't really know who Lowell Thomas is, and yet he was huge at the height of his career. How huge? What place did Lowell Thomas occupy? Well, I think he was one of the best-known people in America in the 1930s and the 1940s. I think he was as well-known as any journalist in the United States has ever been. He hosted the first network radio newscast, so uh, his voice was heard really for the first time all around the United States. And he also hosted uh, the most popular newsreels, which were shown twice a week in movie theaters at a time when uh, most Americans went to the movie theater each week. And uh, I, w- I would say one more thing about him. I would say that the percentage of Americans that got their news from Lowell Thomas was as high as for anyone else including Walter Cronkite and Horace Greeley and uh, and Joseph Pulitzer, all the, all the great names in American journalism. You say that in some ways he was the first multimedia journalist, you know, before, gosh, Twitter and social media and all of that was a thing. I mean, he used video through his travelogue business in ways that it had never been used before. So he sees this transition from radio to a more of a visual medium. Uh, and as you say, narrated those those newsreels, the Fox movie tone newsreels. Uh, we found one about a well-known American aviator who was testing out a tiny plane. The Flying Flea. Flown by Clyde Pangburn, round-the-world conqueror of oceans. Look out, Pang, or it'll get in your hair. A flip of a finger starts the motor at Roosevelt Field, New York. Weight 350 Now, this is, of course, before news was coming into television sets, right? So you would watch these in movie theaters. Yeah, they'd show these newsreels, and it was really the first time that large audiences got to see what was happening around the world. And with Lowell on the radio starting in 1930, they got to hear news from around the world. And with these newsreels, and he took took over as host of Fox Movie Tone News in 1935, just as they were developing a huge audience, uh, they got to see not only aviators and celebrities, but they got to see the president of the United States and, crucially, In the late 1930s, they saw Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Joseph Stalin and uh, and the events leading up to uh, World War II. Well, Lowell Thomas's first news job was with his hometown's only newspaper. He was 19 when he went to work for the Victor Record in Victor, Colorado. And he was, I think, the only employee. So he essentially was putting the paper out himself. And it was a lot of if it bleeds, it leads kind of stuff. Um, What were some examples you found of the news he covered in Tiny Victor, this former gold rush town? Well, here are some of the headlines for Lowell's newspaper. Blood-stained clothes are found. Man falls in fit on street. Woman scared. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, one of his uh, big exclusives was... The fact that the uh, the local mayor's nephew had been arrested for a shooting in Denver, uh, and un- unfortunately, the man shared a last name with the local mayor, 
but was not the local mayor's nephew. And then then Lowell almost became one of these tabloid stories himself because the mayor apparently came after him with a gun. Oh, my. Uh, well, it, it certainly has a, a, a yellow or like sensationalized quality to it. Was Was that pretty common then? It was pretty common, and you know Lowell's next stop on the uh, uh, on the journalistic uh, road was Denver, Colorado, and similar stories were being covered. And then he ended up uh, for a couple of years while going to law school, uh, reporting for Chicago newspapers, which may have been uh, as wild as the press was anywhere in the United States ever. And uh, so, yes, that was pretty typical uh, sensationalism. Sensationalism has always been a part of journalism, but in American journalism, it was uh, running strong uh, in these days when Lowell was cutting his teeth as a journalist. Indeed, he left Colorado to pursue a law degree in Chicago. Uh, He had prior to that met his future wife as an undergraduate at the University of Denver. Uh, But law really was not what carried his career journalism was. And a a pivotal point in Lowell Thomas's career was when he decided to go abroad as a self-proclaimed war correspondent uh, during the First World War. He he found investors to start Thomas Travelogues Incorporated and hired a film cameraman, uh, you know, early moving pictures again. Uh, They set out for Europe Eventually, Thomas and his cameraman, Harry Chase, wound up in the Middle East. Why was that such a significant turning point for him professionally? Well, he he went to the Middle East when there were pretty much no other American journalists. And I have to put journalists in quotes because Lowell was working for himself, essentially, in the Middle East. And he stumbled upon a blue-eyed, beardless fellow wandering around Jerusalem in Arab robes. And uh, Lowell had a pretty good nose for news, and he knew this was a story. And he was able to convince T.E. Lawrence to invite him out to Arabia. And Lowell was the one and only journalist to get the story of Lawrence of Arabia leading or maybe leading or participating in the Arab revolt that was part of World War I. And, and he, he lived off that story for years afterwards in a multimedia travelogue that appeared around the world before two million people in a book which was a huge bestseller, the first of the Lawrence of Arabia books. So that really gave his career a big boost. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Mitchell Stevens, who's written The Voice of America. It's about Lowell Thomas, who grew up in Victor, Colorado, and what Stevens calls the invention of 20th century journalism. Uh, So, Mitchell, in 1930, Thomas gets the next big opportunity in his journalism career. He replaced Floyd Gibbons as host of a radio news show at CBS. And as a radio journalist, Thomas honored facts and the truth. What led him to make that shift, especially given the history of embellishment we've talked about? One thing was letters. Uh, He realized pretty quickly that if he got something wrong, a letter would be sent to NBC, his network. He was also on CBS for a while simultaneously, and to his sponsor. 
And that became pretty uncomfortable. So from that point on, when Lowell was doing the news formally on radio or in newsreels, he really did make an effort to get things straight. When he was telling the story of his life, uh, that it was a little different. Which perhaps makes it difficult to write a biography of him, huh? Well, there's nothing a biographer likes more than a memoir to correct. <laughs> Lowell's two-volume memoir gave me lots of opportunities. Uh, be- no, he was not being shot at there. No, he was, uh, you know, not the first to do this. No, he was not riding camels with Lawrence into uh, into battle. So, uh, yeah, so, but there... And he did leave a lot of letters and diaries, so it was where he where he was more honest, and you could figure out what went on. Lowell Thomas was also known for his on-air bloopers, like this one, in which he's talking about a woman that once had the moniker Dolly Dimples, the world's most beautiful fat lady. That was the billing Mrs. Geyer used when she weighed 555 pounds. Count them, 555 pounds. Now a svelte 122. She tells in her book how she did it, following the advice of a doctor who told her after a near-fatal uh, uh, heart attack to diet or die. The secret of effective weight loss, massive willpower, says Mrs. Geyer, adding that her own willpower was strengthened by the memory <laughs> Well, anyhow. Maybe you caught that, his accidental utterance of the word farts. Um, He cracks up again later in the same segment. Uh, Thomas had a a specific style on air, and uh, I don't want to just point out, you know, bloopers as the thrust of of what he was known for, because in the introduction we heard him describing those bombs that that hit Japan, the nuclear bombs, and and he's really quite poetic as well. Yeah, and he's... uh... He was a storyteller, an entertainer, as well as a journalist, and like good storytellers and good entertainers, he had a wonderful sense of humor. He uh, began the practice of ending each newscast with a lighter story, a kicker, we call him in the business, and uh, and he and he was known for cracking up on the air, which is something that Walter Cronkite and Tom Brokaw never did, and uh, and his news writers used to purposely write double entendres into the script to see if they could get him to start laughing. Um, Would you say that the trajectory of his career is the professionalizing of journalism? I mean, you point to some pretty unprofessional stuff there. I think his great contribution to journalism was uh, establishing that network newscasts and he took over the first network newscast and for a while was the only network newscaster on NBC and CBS that these newscasts would be nonpartisan. Uh, Later he had competitors who tried a much more opinionated approach but Thomas was very concerned with playing it down the middle and this really became the dominant style of uh, network radio and television news in the 20th century. And and I think it also became the style of a lot of newspaper journalism in the 20th century. It is what I think we call traditional journalism today. And I think it's what people are dealing with as they look to new forms of journalism, some of them unpleasant, 
Some of them may be a little bit more interested in getting at the truth than just saying, well, here's what the Republicans say and here's what the Democrats say. Well, Lowell Thomas died in 1981. He was 89 years old. And I thought we might wrap up on his farewell radio broadcast in 1976 uh, on CBS. Instead of my usual so long until tomorrow or until Monday, since this is Friday, tonight it will simply be here's to all of you. So long. So long, Mitchell Stevens. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. He spoke with us last August on the anniversary of Thomas's death. He has written The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas, and the Invention of 20th Century Journalism. Finally today, Lego sculptures have been popping up around Durango for the last two years. It's the work of San Bridgham, the Lego bomber. Here's CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf. Sam Bridgham asked me to meet him outside a coffee shop on Durango's Main Avenue and to wear a newspaper hat so he could identify me. I obliged and kept an eye out for an adult male in his 50s. Instead, I'm greeted by a blonde-haired 11-year-old. He tells me he's Sam, the Lego bomber, and takes me on a tour of, quote, his artwork. Um, I'm going to have you go to the other side of the street up here on this next block. This Sam leads me to Lego sculptures around the town. Many are surprisingly discreet. You have to look up or down to see ones posted outside of businesses. And I almost missed the Legos in the sign for the old main post office. They look like they're part of the stonework. And the post office was cool with this? They've left it up? Well, we put it up only a couple of days ago, but they're fine with it. Our tour ends at an old junior high school that's been converted into space for yoga and art classes. There we find a bright green centipede-like Lego creature crawling up a wall. I play along with Sam, but I finally call him out on his ruse. And remind him that I've seen pictures of the actual Sam Bridgham. Well, they're taking photos of the older me. Okay. The older Sam, who is was born in the 60s. Can I meet the older Sam today? Probably. Okay. Can Let you me sh- just grow up right now? Okay. Younger Sam disappears down a stairwell. An older Sam emerges from around the building. Are you the older Sam? <laughs> Here I am. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. I learned Bridgen's impersonator is Nils Hansen, one of his Lego bombing assistants. But when Bridgen began this two years ago, it was a solo endeavor. I was just really frustrated one night. I'm lying in my bed, and I'm, I'm, I'm not ordinarily a praying man, but I, tried it, I gave it a try, got nothing, and uh, just felt really irritated and decided to go vandalize something. He happened to have hundreds of Legos lying around because he teaches Lego robotics. So I just took all these Legos and plastered it on a, on a post trying to offend somebody. And what do you know, it was wildly misinterpreted as art. And here I am today. Now, many of his young Lego robotic students help him construct Lego bombs around the city, including places like a Starbucks sign or the window of the drive through pharmacy at a Walgreens. This is Stephanie. She's from Colorado Public Radio. Oh, hi there. And I'm, just, I'm taking her on the tour. Melissa Sullivan is a senior pharmacy technician at Walgreens. Through the drive through intercom system, she explains why she loves having the Lego sculpture there. People ask about it. It just sparks conversation. Bridgem has no idea how many Lego bombs are currently on view around town. I'm sort of like a squirrel burying uh, acorns. I, I leave them out and I often forget where they are and then people tell me, oh yeah, I saw it over here. Often the Lego bombs are taken down or moved. These things have a lifespan and sometimes it's just time for them to move on. They're not meant to be permanent. His work certainly hasn't gone unnoticed. The Durango Herald has written several articles about the town's resident Lego bomber. 
He's beginning to get more commissions. And in the spring, the city awarded him the first Durango Creates grant, giving him $1,000 to Lego bomb along a stretch of Main Avenue. I'm a vandal with a budget now and a license. So (laughs) I'm respectable society's worst enemy. More recently, he's taken on his biggest project yet, a permanent installation at Fort Lewis College's John F. Reed Library, to be completed later this month. Martha Tallman is the library's director. She commissioned Bridgem to build it, opting for Lego art instead of yet another landscape painting. My reaction to his work is often, wow, I know that's not very literary or um, whatever, but it, it often has that effect on me. And I hope other people do that too, because the unexpected nature of the medium and the forms, I think will do that. Bridget wants to bring color and light to the largely beige space. And so I'm focusing mainly on these, uh, these four columns with the lights. Bridgen says he'll place Legos up each column as high as he can. He's also begun a mosaic-like work that wraps around the library's balcony. Much of these Legos have been donated by Durango kids. I will have all the Lego I could possibly want to finish this project with and then some. Bridgen says he's been paying attention to how people respond to the Lego art, and he finds all kinds of deep meaning in it. But when you look at online comments, many people just call his Lego art fun. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Everything is awesome when you tune in. Thanks so much.